Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Philip Goff, Professor of Philosophy at Durham University. His book, Why the Purpose of the Universe, is just out from Oxford University Press. Does the universe have a purpose? And if it does, how is this connected to the meaningfulness that we seek in our own lives? In his new book, Goff argues for cosmic purposivism, the idea that the universe does have a purpose, although this is not because there is an all-powerful God who provides it with one. Instead, he argues fundamental physics provides us with reason to think it is probable there is a cosmic purpose. And moreover, the best explanation of these reasons is to posit cosmopsychism, the idea that there are fundamental forms of consciousness such that the universe itself is a conscious mind. Guff argues that these claims are not as extravagant as they may initially seem, and that his view provides a way for understanding human purposes that lies between secular humanism and religious or spiritual perspectives. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, Hello, Philip Goff. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hello, good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm really looking forward to this discussion, which will probably be somewhat contentious because, you know, I found... Um, I was amused by the whole the whole package that you present um, in in why in the purpose of the universe book. Um, uh, before we get into the details of the book, uh, maybe you can give us a little sense of you know who you are as a philosopher, how you got into philosophy, and how you came to write this book. Yeah, well, I'm currently professor of philosophy at Durham University. <clears throat> Been here about five years now. Um, I guess I've just always been obsessed with philosophy, really, but as far as I can remember, um, I think I've always been sort of obsessed with how the different stories we tell about reality fit together. An example of that, when I, I mean, I was raised Catholic and I remember at a very early age asking the priest where Adam and Eve were when the Big Bang happened. So I think that was an example of like somebody had told this one story at church about Adam and Eve. And then this, I was always very interested in physics and black holes and stuff. And then hearing his other story about the origins of the universe and thinking, how do they fit together? And then I suppose in terms of how that's turned out is thinking about, for example, how the story we tell about free will fits together with the story we tell about near deterministic physics or the story we tell about morality, right and wrong, good and bad, fit together with the valueless facts of natural science. Or the one I've probably focused most on in my career is 
how the facts about consciousness, feelings and experiences fit together with the neuroscientific story of what's happening in the brain. So in, in all of these is a challenge of how all of these things hang together in one unified theory of reality. And that's what really keeps me awake at night. Okay. Well, um, so, right. So I mentioned, you know, the title of uh, is why the purpose of the universe. Great cover, by the way. Um, it is lovely, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. They did a really um, great job. Uh, so the, I guess the first question that I, that I came, you know, that, that as I was, you know, reading on uh, this idea of purpose of the universe uh, was, you know, this, the, the idea that a lot of people, well, if not everybody wants some sort of meaning in their life. Um, and that this also raises the question of the connection of one's own sort of personal meaning with a larger purpose of maximally, of course, the, the universe itself, all of reality. And one of the questions that I had immediately, and you, 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 hit it right at the beginning because it is kind of important is why do i need to worry about the cosmos the 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 idea that the universe has a purpose why isn't it enough that i have my own purposes and i find them meaningful and that's that's sufficient good question well, I'm not sure I think it is essential necessarily to think about cosmic purpose. It, most of the most of the book is just the cold-blooded scientific and philosophical case that we th that there is reason to take seriously what I call cosmic purpose that there is some kind of purpose or goal-directedness at the fundamental level of reality. Now, you could, in principle, accept that argument and think, well, I don't care. You know, actually, my colleague David Faraci here at Durham, when we've talked about some of this, he says, yeah, I could see the case, but, you know, nothing to do. It doesn't affect my life. I make my own meaning, whatever. And that's that's a, that's a perfectly valid reaction. But as you say, in, in the first and the last chapters, I do reflect on how this can connect to human meaning and purpose. And here I take a kind of a middle way. It's always the middle way options with me. Um, you know, one extreme you might have, for example, the Christian philosopher William Lane Craig, who says, if there's no purpose to the universe, it's all pointless and meaningless. He even says, you know, we might as well rape and kill each other if we want to. Um and not only religious philosophers, the the, the anti-natalist philosopher David Benatar, who I touch on, um, thinks thinks life is so not entirely meaningless, but so meaningless that the moral thing to do is to let the human race pass out of existence. And it's actually unethical to have children. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is, I suppose, well, my colleague who I referred to earlier, his response, well, what's it that, it, you know, may, pro there probably isn't cosmic purpose, but even if there is, it would just be irrelevant to my life. So my middle way view, I think, and I'm very open-minded actually on, on this question, but my what I tentatively say is, yes, you can have a, a meaningful life um, independently of cosmic purpose. I, I actually, 
I am an objectivist on this, as we may, might be get onto. So I think there are certain things that are objectively meaningful and worth pursuing, like creativity, the pursuit of knowledge, kindness and love and so on. Um, so I don't think it's just up to you what's meaningful, but you, you can have a perfectly meaningful life without necessarily connecting up to cosmic purpose. I, I like to think I had quite a meaningful life before. It's only very recently I've taken these ideas seriously. However, if there is cosmic purpose, then I think perhaps potentially there's the potential for having a more meaningful form of existence. You know, I think we want our lives to make a difference if we could in some small way contribute to the purposes of the whole of reality. You know, that's kind of huge. That's about as, as big a difference as you can imagine making. So, so yes, you can have a meaningful life without cosmic purpose, but maybe life has the potential to be more meaningful in relation to cosmic purpose. Um, okay, well, that's that is debatable, I think. But let's uh, let me let you mention the being a, an objectivist about uh, about value and about what it what makes for a meaningful life, even if it's an open question whether you actually need to contribute to a cosmic purpose. Um, can you uh, tell us a bit more about this objectivism about? Uh, value. I, I get a bit autobiographical at this part of the book. I talk about how I, I, in earlier days I was a subjectivist about value. I was very inspired in my teenage years by the great Scottish philosopher David Hume. And Hume famously said, reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions. So basically, we each have certain fundamental life goals and there's no way of rationally ascertaining which of those is better than any other. So, you know, if one person desires to increase well-being in the world and another just wants to torture as many people as possible and another wants to just collect stamps, each of those is objectively speaking on a par. And I used to go go for that for a long time. And but with the, with the other aspect of closely related aspect of Hume's view, which also very much motivated my thinking here, was Hume famously said, "You can't get an ought from an is." That is to say, the 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 cold blooded empirical facts about the world never entail any facts about value, good, bad, uh, what you ought to do, what you have reason to do. Um, so, well, as I describe in the book, what was really a life-changing experience for me when I was a graduate student was a philosophy professor persuading me in the pub rather than in the classroom, but nonetheless, um, persuading me that actually these two commitments of Hume are in conflict. Maybe they're even inconsistent because if uh, Hume says, remember, reason is and ought to be, note the word ought, the slave of the passions, which I take him to mean that um, if you desire, what, what, what you have reason to do, what you ought to do is determined by your desires. If I desire to be a philosophy lecturer, I ought to study hard or try and publish things and so on. But notice that is moving from an is to an ought, right? Statements about my desires or my chosen life goals are psychological is facts whereas facts about what you ought to do what you have reason to do are ought facts so 
Hume was infringing, I believe, his own principle here that you can't go from is statements to ought statements, non-value facts to value facts. So where I end up with this is I think if, if, of course, this is highly debatable, but if you accept this principle that you can't go from is facts to ought facts, you can't go from facts that are not about value to facts are about value, then you've got a, you've got a choice. Either there are no facts about value at all, that's the value nihilist position, or there are facts about value, but they are fundamental. That's what I call value fundamentalism, because the Isort principle tells us if you want value, you've got to put it in from the start. You can't get value out of non-value. So value has to be there from the start. That's the value fundamentalist position. And well, I tried to sust- try to sustain the value nihilism position for a long time, but I eventually came round to the the other extreme view of of value fundamentalism. But but yeah, the starting point on this journey was really seeing this tension in Hume that I've kind of wrestled with ever since, I guess. Hmm. Well, couldn't, I mean, just to to pursue that a moment, um, I mean, there's practical rationality, right? Where, you know, the way things are do give you, you know, if you, if you want to be rational, um, you ought to do such and such to, to get that end. If, if such and such, such and such is a, is a, reasonable way to get to that end so you you ought in the practical sense and then there of course there's also the ought of evolution right if you if you want to survive or whatever you you ought to do such and such so i'm I'm just kind of wondering when you get to value fundamentalism or sort of objectivism what is the sort of ought that you're insisting on i suppose i think many people do have this intuition you were perhaps expressing there that the the oughts of practical rationality aren't as metaphysically worrying in some sense and well this was in my graduate study I was really persuaded that that's that's not true that they're just as much oughts I mean you said there that you know if you want to be rational you ought to do such and such well that also is moving from an is to an ought a fact about my psychology what I want to do to a fact about what I ought to do. So why is why is that transition from non-value to value any less mysterious than, you know, a conventional moral ought like Sarah is in pain, therefore I ought to help her? I mean, in both cases, you're going from a cold-blooded fact about the world to a fact about value. So I guess I see all of these um, kinds of value claims as equally metaphysically puzzling, and they are metaphysically puzzling to be fair, or, or to take another example, the ought of rationality. You know, you you ought to follow the evidence. Um, you ought you ought not to believe contradictions. Um, and so what I mean, and so that what really persuaded me away from that the nihilist position was, well, value claims are so pervasive that it's, it's, I'm not clear it's actually possible to live without some kind of commitment to value. In fact, well, a friend of mine, uh, the Dutch philosopher Bart Strömer, who's a very, very consistent value nihilist in his book, Unbelievable Errors, he thinks, I think rightly, that um, he can't consistently believe his view because um, to 
to believe something, at least reflectively, you have to take yourself to have a reason to believe it. But if you're a value nihilist, you don't believe in reasons. So what he ends up saying is the arguments point in that direction. So so ultimately, I think, you know, when we just when we're just thinking about morality and you think, you know, it's it's easy to persuade ourselves. Maybe that's just an expression of our emotions. We're just so horrified by murder that we call it bad. But when you see how pervasive value is in practical rationality and prudential rationality and evidential rationality, it's, I, I don't think the nihilist position is sustainable. And then, um, and then once we're accepting that there are facts about value, then, then we lose our, our, our re reason, I think, to rule out moral facts about value as just part of that package. Okay. Um, so you mentioned, uh, well, let's let's just you know kind of cut to the chase here in, in at least first part of the book. Um, you do think there is, or we should believe in uh, a cosmic purpose. Um, can you tell us why? Good. Uh, I believe is a quite a little bit of a strong word. Maybe I, I mean. Um, I would say there's yeah very good reason to take it seriously, even that it's more probable than not. Um, but yeah, um, well let me let me take that again. Maybe that it's even more probable than not. But yeah, so I I do think there is there is evidence that points in that direction. Well, one of the things I focus on is what's known as the fine tuning in physics for life. This is the surprising discovery of recent decades that for life to be possible certain numbers in physics had to be just right <laughs> so um the example that's perhaps baffled cosmologists the most focuses on um dark energy the force that propels the expansion of the universe um once you do the calculations it becomes apparent that if that force had been a little bit stronger, everything would have shot apart so quickly that no two particles would have ever encountered each other. We wouldn't have had stars, planets, any kind of structural complexity and therefore no life. Whereas if that force had been a little bit weaker, it would not have counteracted gravity. And so everything the universe would have collapsed back on itself in the split the first split second after the Big Bang. So for life to be possible, that 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 the strength of that force had to be like Goldilocks porridge, just right, not too strong, not too weak. Um, now, so I mean, we can get into this more or less precisely, but the way I would introduce the connection to cosmic purpose is, I think fundamentally we face a dilemma, right? Either it's just an incredible fluke that these numbers in our physics, and that's just one example. There are many, many. Um, these numbers in our physics are just right for life or the alternative is that, that that these numbers are as they are because they are the right numbers for life in other words that there is some kind of goal directedness towards life at the fundamental level of reality and the former option i think that it's just fluke is just too improbable to take seriously and so we're left with this strange idea of cosmic purpose or goal directedness which is weird is not expected is not what our culture our current scientific culture takes seriously but ultimately i think we need to set aside both our religious biases and our secular biases 
we're sometimes a little bit unattentive to the latter and just follow the evidence where it leads. And I think this is where it leads. I sometimes annoy people on Twitter by saying, I think Bertrand Russell would have believed in cosmic purpose because the evidence wasn't there when he was alive, but it is now. Hmm. Well, I mean, I suppose, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of a parallel argument in a way about evolution. Uh, You know, so it's a, it's a smaller bit of that, but the, the basic issue is how contingent um, is the are the species that we have now? Um, how contingent is the is the process of evolution? Is it you know if you change something different, you know you might have gotten a very different you know forms of life and different mm. distributions of species, different species altogether. Um, some people think. Uh, that it's radically contingent what what actually exists now in terms of biological species, and others think no, it is it is not. And so, I guess the response there is, um, I I haven't heard a reason why we should reject the radical contingency of the cosmos. Yeah, so I don't know whether, I mean, some people sometimes object, well, isn't this just fine-tuning for the kind of life forms we are, carbon-based, for example? And some of some of it is connected to carbon. Carbon. A lot of the fine-tuning is connected to the conditions you need for stars and many um, complex forms of chemistry um emerge in supernova supernovae what's the plural of supernova supernovae when stars explode but but actually carbon isn't just what we happen to be made of it is an incredibly versatile kind of um chemical element so i i think there still demands explanation i think okay why how come the the, the laws uh are in the range that allow for the emergence of this kind of very complicated element, but actually, some for some cases, the fine tuning are, are not about are not at all about the kind of life we're made of, but just any kind of structural complexity at all. I mean, we just talked about um, the dark energy example, where either the universe exists for less than a second, or no two particles ever met ever meet. You know, there's no kind of structural complexity there or the um, fine tuning pertaining to the strong nuclear force that binds the um, elements of the nucleus together. If that had been a little bit stronger or a little bit weaker, we wouldn't have had really any chemical complexity. And one of those possibilities, we would have had just hydrogen, which is sort of the simplest element. There's very little you can do with hydrogen, just one kind of chemical reaction. So, um so yeah, so I I suppose it's it's not just about the particular life forms we are, but why why is there any kind of structural complexity? And well, I mean, ultimately, I think why we think this is striking is because I think those numbers in our physics are compatible with a universe containing great value, life, intelligent life, people that can fall in love and write poetry and contemplate their own existence. Our physics is compatible with all of these things, whereas insofar as we've been able to map out the possibility space of varying the numbers and seeing what universe you'd get, the vast amount of the probability space involves universes with little or no value, universes 
just containing hydrogen, for example, or that collapse back after a split second as little of any value. So I think um, it does demand explanation why the numbers that happen to come up in our physics are on that rare range that is compatible with with the existence of value. Okay, so so then how does value arise, if I can use that word uh, as a as a placeholder at least? How does value arise from this? complexity um are you asking about the the sort of the theories of what grounds cosmic purpose or yeah i I suppose i mean i was just kind of following up how you described you know why is there any kind of of structural complexity at all and um uh and so there seemed to be a connection there between the structural complexity and the existence of value in this, you know, non-prudential, you know, non-evolutionary sense of purpose. And I was just wondering, how do you get the, how do you, how do you get the purpose from the non-purpose? Yeah. So the, so that, I mean, the minimal ever, what, what is the minimal claim that this fine tuning supports? I mean, some people use it to argue for the existence of God, uh, and, you know, it's God that fixed the numbers, maybe to bring about human beings or what have you. You might think that's a bit sort of anthropocentric. But what is what? Oh, and as we might get on to, I've got problems with the God hypothesis as well. So that's not the route I take. But what is the minimal hypothesis? And the minimal hypothesis, I want to say, is that the numbers in our physics are as they are because they allow for a universe of great value. This is what I call the the value selection hypothesis. Now, okay, that's just that's just the bare hypothesis, and I think we need to fill that out to explain. Well, how could that be? How could it be that that facts about value are playing a role in shaping the very early universe? And so, in a later chapter of the book, I I, I explore a range of hypotheses for making sense of this. Um, without settling on any of them uh, for definite. I mean, so, but, you know, one option is some kind of designer hypothesis. I don't like the traditional God for reasons you might get onto, um, but maybe we could have a, a non-standard kind of designer, maybe a bad designer, or maybe a designer of limited abilities who's just made the best universe she can. Or maybe I explore the simulation hypothesis the idea that we're in a computer simulation and our design, the designer of our universe is just some random software engineer in the next universe up. So that's one possibility, a sort of non-standard design hypothesis. But it's not obvious, actually. We do need a conscious mind to underpin cosmic purpose. The philosopher Thomas Nagel, in his book Mind and Cosmos, explored a very well-worked-out theory of what he calls teleological laws laws of nature with purposes built into them so it might just be a sort of impersonal tendency of the universe to promote certain things of value a tendency which interacts with the known laws of physics in ways we don't yet understand that's the second option and the third and final option and i guess this is the one that connects most to my prior research is cosmopsychism, the view that the universe itself is a conscious mind with its own goals. So, and I, I end up saying that's probably just about the 
the, the, the best hypothesis for various reasons. But I take all of these seriously. As so, so I think fine tuning supports the existence of cosmic purpose, and these metaphysical hypotheses are ways of making sense of the reality of cosmic purpose. Okay, so yeah, so yeah, one of the very one of the the interesting twists, uh, well, of many in the book is is this idea that we should, if if you believe there is a cosmic purpose, if you're persuaded that there is, then a very common way of explaining that is, as you mentioned, the some sort some sort of deistic, you know, figure of some sort. Um, and you don't find that at all persuasive. And, and that's why you end up with the, what you call the cosmo psychism, right? Um, so maybe just for, be, because the God hypothesis, the, 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 the explanation of cosmic purpose in terms of God or a godlike figure is the popular one what what's wrong with that one well actually it's it's only the the very traditional god hypothesis that i definitively reject the commitment to what philosophers tend to call the omni god all knowing all powerful perfectly good being so that that is the hypothesis um i i i dis- most strongly reject and and it's for the familiar reason that there's such a challenge reconciling the idea of a loving, all-powerful God with the terrible, gratuitous suffering we find in the world, um, particularly in the natural world. Um, you know, why would a loving God who could do anything choose to create us via such a torturous, long-winded process like evolution by natural selection? Why would such a being create the North American long-tailed shrew that paralyzes its prey and eats it alive over several days before it slowly dies from its wounds just kind of makes no sense to me. So it's that omni-god I definitely reject. I do take more seriously some non-standard designer, uh, maybe a designer of limited abilities, who's, as I say, made the best universe she can, and maybe she's like... I'm sorry, I know it's going to be messy, evolution and all that, but it's, it was. this is the only way I can create intelligent life by creating a universe with the right physics that will eventually evolve. And it was sort of this or nothing. So I do take that hypothesis seriously, but there's, there's something of a cost to it just in terms of parsimony. We want as scientists and philosophers to respect Occam's razor. Um, we want to have a simpler view as possible. Why believe in a supernatural designer outside of the universe if it makes sense as i try to suggest it does to think that the universe itself might be a conscious mind so then we just end up with a more parsimonious view so that's why i think cosmopsychism has the edge but uh, but i do take supernatural design hypotheses somewhat seriously mm-hmm. okay yeah because i mean the the leibnizian of course response is that this is you know despite our own intuitions about what is good and not good the um this is still the best of all possible worlds as as he puts it um and with the shrew example that in fact does contribute to the cosmic purpose right um 
So you're you essentially you're saying, well, that is a possible explanation, but it's less parsimonious than the one that says there is no such uh, figure. We can do the same job by positing uh, cosmopsychism. Is that the idea? Yeah, so it's two separate considerations, I suppose. Mm-hmm. One is the parsimony point um, pushing for a conscious universe rather than a designer outside of the universe. Um, and, and, and that's the point I am feel less strongly about. I think it gives a certain advantage to the conscious universe hypothesis, but it, it certainly doesn't decisively rule out a supernatural designer. What I feel more strongly about is is the 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 problem of evil ruling out not just a, not just a supernatural designer but a omni supernatural designer all knowing all powerful perfectly good and i suppose in response to leibniz's intuition the uh, leibniz's view that we're in the best of all possible worlds i suppose it just doesn't seem very plausible <laughs> i mean um who was it was it voltaire who ridiculed leibniz on this you know there's the character who's everything keeps going wrong and they keep declaring oh no, it's the best of all possible worlds um i mean look i i th- there are no certainties here it's you know it's possible that there the omni god exists and there are there is some reason some explanation of why it was important to create the long-tailed North American shrew, even if we can't think of it. But look, so it's possible. It's possible there is an omni-god and there is some reason it was important to create the North American long-tailed shrew, even if we can't think of what on earth that reason might be. But I think all we can ever do is work with the evidence we have and try and assess these things by our own abilities. So I, what I think is very plausible is what I call in the book the cosmic sin intuition. This is the intuition that it would be immoral for an all-powerful being to create a universe like this. And I just think in terms of our best ethical reasoning, that looks like a very solid intuition. You know, we can't know for sure, but it looks on on pretty good grounds comparable to you know other moral intuitions we have like i don't know slavery is bad or something so i think it's i think we can have strong confidence in that cosmic sin intuition and therefore strong confidence that leibniz was wrong and the the omni god doesn't exist okay good good so we've kind of snuck up a bit on the cosmic or cosmo psychism which is your version i guess of of Panpsychism. I mean, there's other versions. Maybe um, uh, so. It'd be good to tell us. You know, how does your version of panpsychism? Well, what is it? You know, how well? What's the relation between cosmopsychism and maybe other forms of panpsychism? And why? Is this a less extravagant uh, explanation, I suppose, of cosmic purpose? Yeah. So I guess it, panpsychism is the view that consciousness goes right down to the fundamental building blocks of reality. It's often characterized as the view that fundamental particles 
such as electrons and quarks have incredibly simple forms of experience. And then the very complex experience of the human and animal brain is somehow built up from those more rudimentary forms of experience. But actually, many, many theoretical physicists are more inclined to think that our reality is made up not of little particles, but rather universe-wide fields, and that particles are just local excitations in those fields. So if you combine that view with panpsychism, you might get pretty close to cosmopsychism because you have the view that the fundamental forms of consciousness that make up our universe are, are constituted of these intrinsic... Sorry. If you combine that view with panpsychism, then you might come pretty close to cosmopsychism because on on this view, the fundamental forms of consciousness are associated with these universe-wide fields. And the the fundamental mind is the bearer of those fields, namely the universe itself. Um, so it doesn't mean the universe has the kind of mind we do. Obviously, it's going to be... It, it hasn't been subject to the forces of natural selection. It maybe is a very alien mind relative to us, but it has some kind of very, very complex conscious experience. Okay, so I, yeah, I try to argue this is not as extravagant as a hypothesis as you might at first think. And much of the motivation for recent discussions of panpsychism and, and the reason it's gone from being a view that was laughed at insofar as it was taken seriously at all to being a view that's um, been published on a lot and taught to our undergraduates and so on. It's been taken much more seriously in recent years. And a lot of this draws on the, the inspiration of certain really important work from Bertrand Russell, actually, in the 1920s, in particular, his book, The Analysis of Matter in 1927. And here, Russell was kind of really re wrestling with the fact that physics is purely mathematical, our most basic science is just a load of equations, which is something we kind of take for granted. But, I mean, this was a radical innovation of Galileo in the 17th century, that our most basic science is just going to be mathematics. Now, of course, that's very useful if you're a working scientist. You can get very precise predictions. But what does it mean for a philosopher interested in the fundamental nature of reality, that our most basic science is just pure math or maths, as we Brits say. Um, and what Russell concluded is it actually means, surprisingly, physics isn't really telling us that much about what physical reality is. It's just describing its mathematical structure. And so as far as physics is concerned, physical reality could turn out to be anything as long as it has the right mathematical structure, you're going to be able to get physics out of that. So in a way, there's, there's a sort of huge hole in our standard scientific story of the universe. And basically, the panpsychist or the cosmopsychist puts consciousness in that hole. So the idea is that the universe itself, it, what we have at the fundamental level is this incredibly complex conscious mind through the complex structure of its experience it forms certain patterns, certain mathematical structures in the character of its experience. And then the idea is those mathematical structures just are what we call physics. So you get physics and its mathematical structures out of these underlying facts about the consciousness of the universe itself. Um, I mean, some people often quote this line from Stephen Hawking that even final 
the final physics won't tell us what breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe. So for the cosmopsychist, it's consciousness that breathes fire into the equations of physics. So to put that in somewhat other words, it's the cause it's the consciousness that explains why the equations describe the universe. Is that correct? Good. Another way of getting getting at this is um is well maybe I won't give you another way because um yeah and and for yeah and for that reason it ends up being I would argue an incredibly parsimonious theory of reality. So I would suggest there must be something that underlies the mathematical structures of physics. Well, unless you take the route of, for example, the um, the physicist Max Tegmark, who just says the universe is pure math. Our universe is made up of numbers and functions and sets. Um, well, maybe you can go that route. Seems a little bit sort of insubstantial. But if you don't go that route, then there must be something that underlies those mathematical structures. And I suggest that the idea that it's a conscious mind, a giant conscious mind that underlies those mathematical structures feels a bit weird. Not doesn't fit very well with contemporary culture, but I argue that it's, it's no, actually no less simple or parsimonious than any other proposal. Hmm. So, so then uh, again, sort of clarification, is it that the universe is a conscious mind or that it has a conscious mind? I would say the former, that the universe just is a conscious mind. So, And basically that all there is at the fundamental of le level of reality is this very, very complex conscious mind with very, very complex experience corresponding to the very, very complex structures of the physical universe. So you imagine, you know, you map out in the terms of fundamental physics, a complete description of the universe, all the vibrations of the fields and the arrangements of the particles. You get a very, very complex structure. The idea is that structure just is the structure of the experience of the conscious of the conscious universe in the way you can describe the structure of the experience of your eye quite complex but obviously much much less complex and the idea is, is that is all there is at the fundamental level of reality and you might say well hold on where's all the stuff physics talks about well as russell rightly observed all physics talks about is mathematical structure and if the if the ex the conscious experience of the universe is complicated enough and has the right kind of patterns in its structure well then you 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 will have that mathematical structure implicit in the in the experience of the universe. So, I mean, it has the it has the surprising result that physicists are actually studying the consciousness of this fundamental mind. Of course, they don't know as physicists that's what they're doing, but that's because as a physicist, you're just you're just interested in the mathematical structures. You're not interested in what if anything underlies those mathematical structures. That's since Galileo, more of a philosophical rather than a scientific question. Mm. So, so is this is this a form of idealism to put it in those terms? That's a good question, uh, which people ask me a lot, and I guess I'm not too fussed about how we define these words. If by idealism you simply mean at the fundamental level of reality, 
we just have mind or consciousness, then it would count as a form of idealism. It's so it's not, this is a very common misunderstanding. Panpsychism, at least I, as I defend it, is not a dualistic view that there's the physical structures and consciousness stuff at the fundamental level. The physicist Sabine Hossenfelder, who I've been arguing with on Twitter recently, uh, she's critiqued panpsychism in this way. She's saying, well, look, if particles had these consciousness properties as well as their physical properties, well, that would show up in our experiments. But that's not the view, right? It's the view, it's the view is that it's not changing physics. The mathematical structures of physics are rooted in this under, these underlying facts about consciousness. Um, so now I've forgotten what the question was. Now. It was, it was, it was the, the idealism. The, uh... Oh, yes. Oh, idealism. So, okay, maybe I'll just pick this up and you can edit it together. So in that sense, it, it could be called idealism, but it's certainly very different from the idealism of George Barclay, for example, that, um, that the physical world is not fundamental. It's, it's grounded in, um, more fundamental experiences of isolated souls. So the, the table in front of me is a collection of ideas, either in our minds or the minds of God. So panpsychism or cosmopsychism is, is much closer to, to physicalism, actually. It's the idea the physical universe is real. It's fundamental. It's really, really out there. Um, it's just that it's constituted of forms of consciousness. Okay. Um, so then... Kind of pulling it all together, how does this view, um, how does this view connect with the idea of a cosmic purpose, and then how does it connect to what we started with, which was the meaningfulness of a you know particular life? Good. So, well, as I say, I think. Um current physics does point i believe to some kind of cosmic purpose and I, you know i think we're i, I try to suggest we're maybe in a little bit in denial about this because it, it sort of doesn't fit with how we expected science to turn out it's maybe a bit like in the 16th century when we started getting evidence that we weren't in the center of the universe and people struggled to accept that because it didn't fit with the picture of reality they'd got used to and nowadays we scoff at those people and we think, oh, why didn't they just, this stupid religious people, why didn't they just follow the evidence? But I think every generation absorbs a worldview they can't see beyond. And I think that's what's going on now with how we're responding to fine tuning. This is this is not controversial physics, but I think um, I think for some reason as a society, we're not facing up to... The pretty straightforward, in my view, evidential implications of fine-tuning. Of course, there are debatable points. Many people would try to explain it instead in terms of a multiverse. I have things to say about that in the book. Um, and it's not just fine-tuning. I also have a chapter on consciousness and certain mysteries pertaining to the evolution of consciousness that I think, in some sense, point to cosmic purpose. Okay, so all of this cumulatively points to some kind of goal directedness at the fundamental of level of reality we need to make ontological sense of that and cosmopsychism gives us a way of doing that a way of grounding this directedness of things in the purposes of the conscious universe itself um you might be thinking okay well how do the 
what about the laws of physics? How do, how do they fit in here? And the way they turn up is as a record of the limitations of the universe. So this isn't an all-powerful cosmic mind. It's a it's a cosmic mind that's pushing towards the good, but under certain constraints. It's not that there's something outside of the universe that's constraining it. It's just a basic fact about the universe that it's limited in what it's able to do. And on this view, the laws of physics record, express, if you like, the limitations under which the universe operates. So that's the theory. And what justifies it is it's, as I say, not too extravagant, although it sounds weird. It actually turns out to be not so extravagant. And it gives us a nice metaphysical explanation of where cosmic purpose that I think is well evidenced in science and philosophy, where that comes from. What does that mean for human existence? Again, I'm much more open-minded on this. I don't, I, I'm not up for talking about it and um, I'm not dogmatic about the, you know, the one true way of, of living your life. Um, but I suppose I have, I can't say I have found it myself to be a deeply meaningful form of existence, way of living, to see the good you're doing as connecting up to some larger purpose that is still unfolding, even if we don't fully understand where that's headed. And um, it, you know, it helps me not focus so much on my narrow self-interest or keeps my ego in check a bit. So I suppose I'm just inviting people to consider this option for thinking about the meaning of life that's not the standard options of um, either secular humanism or a traditional religious option. And I don't know, maybe it might be something you can get something out of. As, you know, as a matter of sociological fact, it does seem many people reach a certain age and, you know, maybe they've got where they wanted to in their career or not. Maybe they've had children. Maybe they've chosen not to have children, whatever. And then they think, is this it? It's not enough. I want, you know, some kind of crisis. And so connecting what you're doing to some larger purpose um, can perhaps help with making sense of the meaning and purpose of our lives. And so in the final chapter, I try and connect it to um, spiritual practice, to community, even to political struggle, and just explore these ideas in a very open-minded, open-minded and conversational way. Okay. So, so to kind of, I, w I was going to ask, you know, to be more, a bit more, more uh, pointed about it, you know, if I asked, you know, what is the purpose of the universe and what does it have to do with me? Uh, mm. Your answers seem to be um, the purpose of the universe is to strive towards the good, I think, something like that. Um, and that has to do with me insofar as I choose to want to strive for the good. Good. So I think, I mean, I would emphasize there's quite rightly going to be a lot of uncertainty about this. And that might seem a bit disappointing, but whilst I think there is some, that there is evidence for some kind of directedness towards the good, how that plays out is um, that there's going to be a great deal of uncertainty. I, I think looking at the, towards the past, I think I try to argue in a book that, cosmic purpose has involved a, a directedness towards the emergence of life, intelligent life, also to the emergence of conscious organisms that 
have conscious understanding of the reality around them. Now it could be, it could be that's the end. It's, you know, that's all folks. We've, we've exhausted cosmic purpose. That's, that's a possibility I can't rule out. Although once you're taking seriously cosmic purpose, you might think it's somewhat improbable that, oh, we happen to be living at the final culmination of it. So maybe it's somewhat more probable that this is still something that's unfolding, that there will emerge forms of existence that are as unimaginable to us as our existence is to worms. And um, yeah, I suppose... Yeah, you know, to some extent, I I I I agree with William James, the great nineteenth-century psychologist and philosopher, that it can be rational to, to an extent, to a limited extent, to hope beyond the evidence. You know, cosmic purpose might have nothing to do with us, but it can be rational once you're taking seriously the idea of cosmic purpose. It can be rational to live in hope that there is some that this is continuing and it is something that we can in some way contribute to. Um, and yeah, I suppose what it's ultimately doing is, I mean, I'm, you know, most of us have lives informed by ethics of one kind or another. We take ourselves to be trying to make the world a better place. And as I say, I think you can have a perfectly meaningful life just through just focusing on trying to make the world a better place. But what, what, cos what, a, co what we might call cosmic purposivism, a sort of living in hope of cosmic purpose, what it does is encompasses that in a broader ethical project that encompasses the whole of reality. And yeah, maybe, maybe that, that bigger focus can perhaps motivate and give meaning in a slightly deeper way. Okay. Um, uh, I, well, there's a lot of questions that I still have. Um, so let me let me just ask one more one more then um okay so you you went well there's a lot uh so tell us a bit about the implications of this uh cosmic purpose of ism for how we actually live our lives i suppose uh you know there's there are plenty of as you mentioned you know religious reasons you know secular humanism and you know all the other ways in which uh one can contribute to in some sense a you know a larger good uh larger in the sense of one belonging to a society which is by definition larger than the individual organism uh, so what does, in terms of just how people should behave or how we should organize our politics or uh, what human society ought to do, maybe, how does adopting this perspective perhaps improve on uh, the you know, similar sorts of directions that might be pointed at through a religious perspective or a secular humanist perspective. Uh, yeah. How, how, how does this direct us and does it do it in a better way than those other alternatives? So in, in the final chapter, I do explore some pretty concrete ideas around three things. Three themes, three themes of um, spiritual practice or spiritual advancement, uh, community, and also 
uh, political struggle. But I mean, I would want to emphasize these, what my claims here or my suggestions here are very much shaped by my own views about what is involved in making reality better. And I'm not trying to lay down the law of um, what a cosmic purposivist has to think. And I, you know, I would invite people reading the book to slip in their, their own understandings of, of, of what cosmic purposivism would amount to reflecting their own views on, on spiritual practice or politics or what have you. Um, so, but I, but I do explore, for example, a particular idea of, of spiritual practice being a matter of trying to, trying to see the emptiness in our socially conditioned ways of seeing reality. I think w when you look around you, you, it seems like you're just seeing the world as it is in and of itself. But of course, a little reflection reveals that actually we very much project our own cultural understanding of reality on the world out there. Uh, we see the world from our from our own perspective. Yes, perhaps most obvious, I think, if, if you think about language, you know, if you, the words you're hearing now, if you're an English speaker, they sound as if they have intrinsic meaning. You know, the word rabbit sounds like it means rabbit. You hear the meaning in the sound, whereas, of course, the vibrations in the air don't have any any inherent meaning um and actually you can sort of you can see through that if you you know if you often when you say a word to yourself again and again this is a familiar thing you say rabbit 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 and it starts to lose its meaning you sort of see through that kind of culturally conditioned way of hearing the word for just for a moment and so i see this is what great art or great beauty or meditation is trying to do is trying to sort of break through our conditioned ways of seeing the world and i suggest for example we can think of great art as a kind of middle way between two extremes I, i'm always into the middle ways so you know one extreme one extreme of bad art is just very banal boring art that just plods along and follows the familiar conventional structures the other extreme you've got for example punk that kind of tears up the rule book just says you know screw everything it's all nonsense we're not gonna we're just gonna have anarchy and i mean i love the original punk bands actually but the problem is it's not sustainable right because it quickly becomes another fashion another conventional way of seeing reality so great art i think works with our conditioned ways of seeing reality but under undoes them from within in subtle ways i give the example of my fellow liverpudlians the beatles you know they started off with vanilla rock and roll and did new things with it unexpected things so revealed the emptiness the conventionality in these structures um and and i i connect this ultimately to politics in the sense that potentially this this kind of practice can help us see through sorry potentially this kind of practice can help us see the conventionality of our property claims i think it's it's so it's so hard for people to see their 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 rights to certain property as merely conventional and arbitrary it's so it, it's so common to see it as kind of natural and what i've got to 
a, a strong moral claim on. It's mine. You know, that's one of the uh, early things toddlers shout, mine. Um, and I think that's a real problem politically because I think it can make people resent taxation. It can and certain kinds of ways of trying to shape society in a more just manner. Whereas if I think through practice, you can come to see um, these things essentially socially constructed, then you can see them as malleable and that they ought to be shaped by considerations of value in the absence of some natural sacred rights to property. So that's one way. And I guess many would disagree with this. And I, you know, I love the debate and I would welcome people who have very different politics to me to read this and appreciate the challenge and shape their own views in response to that challenge and so on. So, you know, insofar as I'm defending this metaphysical view that there is cosmic purpose, there there I feel much more confident about my arguments. But these first and last chapters where it's just exploring human meaning and purpose, it's really intended as more inviting people to consider ideas that they might not have thought of and exploring that. For another idea I consider is religious fictionalism, the idea that we can engage with traditional religion, practice even traditional religion without taking it as literally true, but taking it as a, as a useful, powerful metaphor for connecting to cosmic purpose. Again, not everyone's going to agree with that, but it's just maybe ideas that aren't the familiar options that it's interesting to think about. Good. Okay. So um, we're out of time, but uh, I do like to end with a question about what you're working on now. Are you continuing uh, with this particular strand of your uh, research or are you turning to something else? What's What's on your plate at the moment? Good. Well, right now, I've just been totally consumed with uh, publicizing the book, I suppose, with interviews every day and um, launch events and so on, and uh, trying to fit that in with my other duties of my job. But yeah, I mean, certainly um, after after the Christmas break, I'm going to be getting down to uh, probably returning to some academic work. Well, I have a three-year project, Templeton-funded project, uh, on the theme of panpsychism meets panentheism. So I'm, I I applied for this with uh, Andrei Bukharev, who's a, a philosopher from Marist College in the US. So he defends pantheism or panentheism. Pantheism is the view that the universe is God in some sense. Panentheism is the view that the universe is in God. Uh, and panpsychism is something obviously I've defended. So our temp, our three-year Templeton project is um, exploring whether there's a connection between these two discussions: one in philosophy of mind, one in philosophy of religion. So we we ha- we're having some conferences. I I debated the physicist uh, Sean Carroll as part of this theme, which people can look at on YouTube. But yeah, in terms of getting down to writing academic papers. Um, well, one thing I'm, that comes up in the book that we we haven't got around to talking about, there's lots, obviously there's been lots to talk about, is are these challenges making sense of the fact that consciousness evolved, which, I mean, I think consciousness did evolve, but I think that's very challenging to make sense of because survival is just about behavior. Natural selection is just interested in, in, in behavior that's going to make you survive well. And... Many philosophers think there's no essential, at least no logical connection between behavior and consciousness. You could have a very, very complicated mechanism 
that could maybe survive very well by tracking, mechanically tracking features of its environment, but doesn't have any consciousness at all. And so then it's then it's a puzzle. Why did why did consciousness evolve? And I have a, a piece that's just come out in Scientific American talking about this. And so yeah, so I, I want to work on an academic paper trying to lay that out in in a more rigorous academic form. So yeah, I mean I I really like this thing of everything I do, I try to write a more accessible popular version as well as a more detailed academic version. And philosophers don't do this enough, I think, try and connect up to a broader audience. So yeah, that's going to keep me busy for a little while at least. Excellent. Excellent. So, well, good luck on all of those endeavors. And uh, uh, I look forward to seeing some of that work in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Carrie. It's been a, it's been a really fun conversation. Thanks for having me.